Good morning, Door Creek. Good to be together with you. If you're a guest, my name's Mark, one of the pastors, and this is the day we celebrate our mothers. So grateful for my mom. We called her Moody. That's uh, mom in Swiss German. She loved Jesus, she loved working hard, and she loved life, and I'm so glad she taught me those three things. And so we celebrate our moms today, those who gave us life and encouraged us in life. Glad that you're here. So if you didn't hear last week's message on worry and anxiety from Philippians 4 by David Smith, you need to go back and listen to that podcast. The best sermon I've ever heard on worry. It is a breakthrough sermon if you find yourself dealing with anxiety and worry and what to do with it. So just want to encourage you to do that. Today, we tackle the roadblock called pride. There's a basketball player been a while now since Rick Barry played, but he was known over his 15-year career for one thing in particular, and it was his unusual method of shooting the free throw. They called it the granny style. It was underhanded, and over his 15-year career, he shot an amazing 89.9%. So let's just call it nine out of 10 free throws, 90 out of 100, 900 out of 1,000, over 15 years. That is amazing. And he talked about the physics. Discovery Magazine got a physicist to study the whole trajectory and the backspin and talking about how this is the preferred way to shoot a free throw because there's less mechanical things that could go wrong. So March 2nd, 1962, the very day that Will Chamberlain scored 100 points, it was in that game that he tried it himself. Had never done it before in a game, and that day he shot 32 free throws. Before that game, he was shooting on the average of 54% making free throws. That day, he made 28 out of 32. He shot 88%. And so you would imagine after that stunning improvement of free throw shooting percentages, he would then have adopted the granny style shot. Did he? No, he did not. Why? It was kind of embarrassing. And then they call, did they have to call it the granny shot? Why couldn't they call it the great shot? Maybe everybody would. So pride gets in the way of all kinds of things. I love Lewis's quote here, and we'll be quoting much of Lewis because he writes much on pride. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of ourselves. The vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. Jean-Jacques Rousseau the philosopher from the Enlightenment period. I'm sad to say he was a Swiss. In his book, Confessions, you'll know why. In 1789, he writes this book, Confessions, and he dedicates it to himself with these amazing words. To me, with the admiration I owe myself. (laughs) I know, this is crazy. Why does he have to be Swiss? It's really bugging me. If if you're a guest here, my parents are from Switzerland. Okay. Uh, The book opens with these lines. It gets worse. I have entered upon a performance which is without example, whose accomplishment will have no imitator. I mean to present my fellow mortals with a man in all the integrity of nature, and this man shall be myself. Wow. 
So good thing none of us would even dream of writing that kind of a dedication. So this is obviously not our problem, but we know people, and we will send them the link of this message. <laughs> Lewis called pride the great sin. He says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. Listen to this. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. In your study notes, as a group, you're going to be looking at both Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, which reminds us it's the first sin in all of God's good creation committed by none other than Lucifer, this guardian angel of God's glory who wanted to be like God. So it's the very first, it's how the devil became the devil, Lewis says. Pride leads to every other vice, to every other sin. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride, which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. You think about the greatest atrocities in human history, and you can chase it down to a proud leader, tyrant. So John Stott has given us our big idea. Pride is our greatest enemy. And so since pride is our greatest enemy, humility needs to be our greatest friend. Since pride is our greatest enemy, humility needs to be our greatest friend. Ten signs that we struggle with pride. You ready? I mean, this is for our friends, not for us. All right, number one, a constant need for attention and affirmation. We're bragging about our accomplishments or the flip side, we can be bemoaning and commiserating under our unfortunate circumstances. The center point is the same, ourselves. Number two, seeing ourselves as too good to perform certain tasks. You know, that's not my job. I don't do windows. You didn't know that about me? Too good for this. Three, prejudice, where we're looking down on people as we size them up, not from the inside out, but from the outside in. Problems with anger, great sign, indicator of a problem with struggle with pride. Thinking I'm better, smarter than everyone else in the room. The need to constantly teach people things. Dismissive of advice, of constructive criticism. Have no room for that, no place for that. We dominate conversations and seemingly can't stop talking about ourselves. We're obsessed with our physical appearance. We're unwilling and resistful of submitting to authority. We'll be quick to drop a name to show our importance. So it's important to remember, though, that not all pride is bad. The Bible will say there are good things that we should be proud about. In fact, Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 gives us an example of both of these. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. The good kind of pride is focused on God. 
his gifts, even the gifts that have come to me. So that when someone praises us for something, we're very mindful this is a gift. This is, I'll praise to God. I'll praise to God. Good pride focuses on others. Like Paul in Corinth, in his letter to the Corinthians, he talks about how they are his pride. He even takes pride in his ministry, which is all about preaching Christ and him crucified. The false kind of pride is the pride where we're boasting in ourselves, in our wisdom, in our strength, in our riches. Pride is actually an exaggerated opinion of ourselves. It's an attitude of superiority where we think that we're better than other people. And it comes across in our words, in our actions, and often in our inaction. Lewis again says, pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. And so since pride is our greatest enemy, humility needs to become our greatest friend. So here's our tack. We're going to look at a very proud man. Maybe you've heard of him. Maybe you haven't. His name is Haman. And we'll read about him in Esther chapter 5. So grab a Bible. Esther is just to the left of the middle of the Bible, which is the book of Psalms. To the left of Psalms is a book called Job, not Job, Job. And to the left of Job, you'll find Esther, Esther chapter 5. We are going to see a man who was boasting in his riches and his wisdom and his strength. A little background on the book of Esther. God's people have been carried off into exile. The northern ten tribes in 721, Sennacherib the Assyrians. In 605 B.C., the beginning of the 7th century, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians... They've overthrown the Assyrians, and they go after the southern two tribes, Jerusalem, and the faithful remnant of God's people down in the south. That's the period when Daniel is taken as a fugitive and is living in exile. Now, after 70 years, the Babylonians are overthrown by the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire. The king is Cyrus, and Cyrus, after 70 years of exiles, gives the Jews permission to return to Israel, but not all the Jews do. So we're, we're still in a foreign land. Xerxes is king now. He's a Persian king, a Medo-Persian king, and Esther is a Jewish woman who's a slave. Her uncle is Mordecai, and Queen Vashti has disrespected the king, and so he's, he's forced her out, and there's been a beauty pageant in chapter two, and Esther is chosen as King Xerxes' queen. Chapter three, Haman is elevated to the top of all the noblemen of the land. He's the guy, and everybody respects him, and everybody bows to him whenever they see him at the courts, at the gate of the palace, they're all bowing, except one guy, Uncle Mordecai, and it's ticking Haman off. And so he finds out he's a Jew, and he says, you know what, I'm going to wipe out not just Haman, but everybody who's of Jewish origin. So he goes to the king, and he says, king, I got an idea, and I'd like you to pass this law. Now, the laws of the Medes and the Persians were irrevocable, so once a law was enacted, that was it. And so he said, I want you to enact a law and I've got a bunch of money to give you just to fill your coffers because I'd really like this law to be passed. And the law basically said, on such and such a date, 
all the, Babylon, all the people of Babylon, uh, excuse me, all the people of Persia have permission now to kill, destroy any Jew and confiscate all their possessions. So he was basically writing legislation to enact complete genocide of all the Jews in the land. Mordecai's undone. He fasts and he prays. Esther finds out he's fasting and praying, doesn't know what's going on. He, she sends for him and he says, listen, Esther, here's what's going on. Haman has got this legislation passed and we're all done for it. And you're our only hope. So you gotta go to the king and you gotta beg for mercy here. And she's going, the king has no idea that I'm a Jew. The king, if he doesn't invite me and raise his scepter when I enter his presence, can do away with me. I mean, like this do away with me. I can't just go waltzing into his presence. He said, Esther, don't think you can escape. Don't think you can escape. We'll pray for you fast and pray. She does for three days. And after three days, she says, I'm going to go. And so what she does is she goes to the king and her heart's pounding. And as she walks in his presence, he raises his scepter. She's allowed entrance. And he says, what is your request? King, I'd love to have you and Haman over for dinner tonight. I've prepared a feast for you. He said, we'd love to do it. So they have dinner. In the middle of dinner, he says, Esther, what's your request? She says, King, my request is, give me one more day. Come back for another feast tomorrow and with Haman, and I'll give you my request. So this is where we pick up the story in Esther chapter five, verse nine, and Haman is literally kind of walking on air. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. This is from the feast. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh's wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction at all, as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to the heights of 50 cubits, 75 feet, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up, chapter 6. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing's been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than moi? Actually, it was me. All right, so he answered the king, 
For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have re recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai before whom your downfall has started is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Chapter seven, so the king and Haman went to the queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again, queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes, Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king explained, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's faith. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. There's a proverb, Proverbs 16.8. You may have heard of it. It describes exactly the life and history of Haman. Pride goes before what? Destruction. A haughty spirit goes before what? A fall. This is what happens to Haman and any of us who would befriend pride and not see it as our greatest enemy. Pride is so hard to see in ourselves. Much easier to see in other people. Maybe through a look again at Haman's life, we can connect the dots of our own struggles with pride. He lives for self, seeking the places of honor, bragging and boasting about all 
that he had, apart from any blessing of God. He's filled with rage and anger. He's obsessed with revenge. He thinks and acts as if he's God, and he can choose who lives and who doesn't. There's great prejudice, right? Prejudice on steroids. I mean, he labels a whole race as undeserving of life. He's a people pleaser par excellence with an insatiable appetite for the praise of others. And it's so bad that he has everybody's praise from the king to all the noblemen, to his family and to his, his uh, wise counselors around him that he cannot be satisfied until, until Mordecai too gives him the honor that is, is his due. He's completely preoccupied with self so that when the king asks the question, what would you suggest I do for the man in whom the king wants to honor and whom he finds great delight? It's gotta be me because it's always about me for Haman and when we struggle with pride. So he boasts in his wisdom, his strength, his riches, not God, craving the praise of people. He's almost overcome with the thought that he would be the one who would receive the highest honor, that he would wear the robe, a symbol of being like a, a, a vice regent, number two in the land, that he'd be paraded on the, the king's stallion, that it would be announced as him throughout the streets of Susa, that he is the guy, only to plunge into the depths of a reality he'd never, ever dreamed of. His riches, his position, his wisdom, his strength, and praise weren't enough. For the things that we would go to to satisfy ourselves as we chase it down in, in a pride that is anti-God, set apart from God, it'll always leave us to this place where we're wanting more, never satisfied. He really thought if he had Mordecai that all would be well. And the truth is there'd be something else. So pride is a ruthless enemy that is dressed up or disguised like our best friend. And, and the, the trouble is, it's like this silent enemy Keller, in a sermon I'm going to refer to in a bit, talk, talks about it. It's the carbon monoxide sin. You don't see it. And it's so deadly. The Bible reminds us that God is vehemently opposed to the proud, 1 Peter 5, 6. Listen to these verses in Proverbs and Psalm, Proverbs 8, 13. He hates pride and arrogance. He won't tolerate it, Psalm 101, 5. He will tear down their houses, Proverbs 15, 25. He detests the proud, Proverbs 16, 5. We don't have to wonder, what is God's disposition to pride and the proud? He's against it. He will tear it down. He will have no rival. He will not allow us to be destroyed. He's gonna take it down. So God takes Haman down. And that gallows, that pole that he, he built through the night is the very thing that would be his end. So God's opposed to pride and hopefully by now you're going maybe. Are you going to maybe? Maybe I've got pride in my life. I hope so. Because like when I was doing that list of 10, here's what I was doing. 
And it was, this is hard. I mean, I'm going to preach on this, and I'm a pastor. I'm going, check. And then I didn't go down to like two others. I just kept going, check, 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 check. Oh, God, help me. I, it's so much easier to see in your life. I mean, like, I got a pretty good carbon monoxide, you know, detector when it comes to your pride. I mean, I can smell that thing a mile away. Let me just say this. I think the better we're able to see it in other people is an indication you fill in the blank. So if God's opposed to the pride, if pride's our greatest enemy, and we're likely to struggle with it in, in some degree most of our lives, what is the answer? Befriend humility. Befriend humility. So what does that look like? What does that actually mean? So there's a verse that we alluded to already, 1 Peter 5. Peter talks about it. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor or grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Now, all of you, what? What's that word? Starts with a C. No, keep it up there. Clothe. All right, I'm looking around. Yeah, you did that. I'm really glad you did too. (laughs) So we do that how often? Hopefully every day, right? We we put on new clothes, fresh clothes, whatever. We, We clothe ourselves. What are we doing? We're taking something that isn't on us and we're wrapping it around us. So we don't just say, Clothes. No, we take it and we put it on. It's an act of the will. And it's a daily thing. We clothe ourselves with humility. We don't pray, God, humble me. We humble ourselves. James 4 will say the same thing. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So how how do we befriend humility? We understand that this is going to be a daily decision where I take on the garments of humility, the attitudes and actions of humility. It's more, though, than just virtues. It's actually we're putting on Christ. It's about a relationship. It's not about religious behavior. It's about a relationship that drives us to seeing ourselves as God sees us. And there's no better place for us to see who we really are than in juxtaposition to Christ, especially Christ on the cross. There I understand I'm a sinner who deserved to die, but he died in my place. So I'm reminded that I'm loved beyond the wildest imaginations that I could ever dream up with, that the God of the universe would treat treasonous me who thought he could do it better, who thought I didn't need God, who thought that God is for weak people, thought I'd I'd be a better God, and, and, and he loved me, and he gave himself for me. Befriending humility is nothing less than befriending Christ and doing life with Christ and having Christ's spirit active and overflowing in my life. There's a classic passage about the humility of Christ and how that is to impact our lives. Philippians chapter two. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's pride. 
Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's, it's a willful thing. It's a daily thing. It's connected radically to Christ. Our mindset is connected to Christ's mindset who said, I did not come to be served. Pride says, are you kidding me? That's why I'm here, is I'm looking for your love and anything else you can give me. I did not come to be served, but I came to serve and give my life as a ransom, give my life away for many. Christ's mind, Christ's example, Christ's humility, if you could get it down to a word, is all about servanthood, sacrificial servanthood, my life for yours, seeking the good of others before ourselves, that kind of agape love. We need to befriend humility. I mentioned Tim Keller. I read one of his sermons on Esther's chapters five through seven. And he made an interesting, important point about Haman. He said, actually, Haman wasn't asking for the wrong thing. He wasn't looking for the wrong thing when he was looking for the king's honor and praise. He was just looking to the wrong king. Not for the wrong thing, but the wrong king. Because actually, there is no human king who can satisfy us with their praise. There is no queen that can do that. He was looking to the wrong king. He says there's a better king with ultimate glory who, believe it or not, came to earth and stripped himself of his glory when he went to the cross. He wasn't just stripped of his clothes, but he was stripped of his father's love. He was stripped of his father's approval, of his father's respect. Why? He did it for us. He was reversing places with us. Haman had no choice in the matter to reverse places with Mordecai. He built the gallows, so to speak. He erected the pole for Mordecai. The king said, now that's your pole now. And he had no choice. Jesus had a choice. He had a choice. But he went to the pole, even the Roman cross. Jesus took off his royal robes. He was crowned with a thorn of crowns that you and I would be robed in God's merciful love and receive this right standing, his perfect righteousness 
So that when God looks at us, even with the pride in our life, as we placed our trust in Christ, he sees Christ because we're in him through faith by God's grace. Again, Keller, we don't just want love. We want someone whom we think the world of, thinking the world of us. I mean, just think about it. There are people that'll give you compliments and you go, that was nice. And then there's a person and you go, wow, like that just made my decade. You know what I'm saying? He says, we are looking for someone we think the world of, thinking the world of us. Who thinks the world of us? Or as one writer put it, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. That's what Haman is saying. If I had that, if I have the king putting his robes on me, the king loving me like that, if I was loved like that by someone as glorious as that, then I would know that everyone would know. And you and I have been loved by a far greater king in a far greater way than Haman ever desired or imagined. And so since pride is our greatest enemy, humility needs to become what? Our greatest friend. And Jesus invites us into that friendship. Even the proud, stubborn, angry, bragging, boastful people that we are. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Again, he didn't say, be ready because I'm going to lasso you now. He says, you've got to submit yourself. Come under the leadership of my yoke. But here's what you need to know about my leadership. I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Have you done that? Have you submitted your life to Christ's leadership? Have you, have you gone tandem with him? And are you learning humility from the one who gave his life away for you? that you would be freed to give your life away from others. All the other world's religions are going to set you on a performance trap where you're going and working and doing the work to gain God's favor and to satisfy the longings that we have innate in our human spirit. But the good news of the gospel says, Jesus did it all. He paid it all. He lived the perfect life. Trust in him that you might be freed from that to live for him and to live for others. Again, Lewis, pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love. I mean, just think about it. When we're, when we're proud before God, that just cuts us off from God we remove ourselves from the possibility of receiving God's love. When we act in proud ways in our marriage and with our kids, it's actually putting great spaces between the people that love us and are God's gift to us to receive God's gift of love through them. It cuts us off from the very possibility of love because we are saying in our pride, I don't need your love. I love myself enough for everybody's love, Rousseau. Not only does it eat up the very possibility of love, but of contentment, of contentment. 
or even common sense. So where is pride destroying things in your life, your relationships? How is pride at work in your family, in your friendships, in your marriage? I can't tell you how many times I've been in a counseling session with a couple and I'm going, man, if you would just humble yourself, you guys, and just acknowledge that you're not perfect and say to each other, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. We could move forward. But your stubborn, rebellious position where you don't want to give a millimeter is keeping you not in a happy place, a conflicted, hard place that is so not life-giving. Pride destroys relationships in the workplace, on our sports teams, in our schools. Think of politics. Oh, my word. It, 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 it just completely gets us stuck in our faith journey. We just grind to a halt. So, so we need... We need to put it on. We need to be in relationship with Christ. And, and we, need to have a good, we need to have a good carbon monoxide detector. We need to have a good pride detector. And I'm just going to say, we need to, number one, live in the shadow of the cross. Never forget the cross. At the foot of the cross, we all stand on level ground. Reminded that we're sinners, that Christ died for us. And reminded that we are objects of his great love. Live in the shadow of the cross. Stay connected to God's word. Why? Because God's word is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. And it is useful for these things, to teach us, ah, to rebuke us. What does that mean? To call out our pride. Is that what are you doing? And, and it corrects us, to get us on the path of humility. And it trains us in righteousness so that we are equipped to live rightly before God and others like Christ. Stay in the word. And as we're in the word, that means we're, we're gonna be filled with the spirit, word and spirit, always together. We're praying. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. Because the less of your spirit, the more of me, the more of me, the more of pride, the more of pride, the more I'm gonna muck it up and just push people away and push you away. Your spirit, your spirit overflowing from me so I can be doing life from a position of strength and satisfaction and joy to be able to serve and to give my life away and in that find life abundantly like I've never, ever experienced. So we need to acknowledge our pride we need to humble ourselves. The Bible never says pray for humility. Don't do that. You don't want the answer to that request. Humble yourself. Let the spirit who convicts us of sin just call it out in our life. Here are the marks of those who humble themselves. Jesus speaks to it exactly to the point when he goes through the Beatitudes, which begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is another way of saying, blessed are the humble. Spiritually humble, that understand we have nothing to bring to God, and it's all by his grace that we could be in a relationship. And then he says, on the heels of that, the person who is humble, who receives the kingdom of God, mourns for sin, has gentleness and meekness, strength under control, marking our lives. There's an insatiable appetite, not for the praise of people, but for righteousness, for God's word, for his glory. There's mercy in our hearts for the people in misery. There's a purity of motivation living for God. There's an ongoing commitment to pursuing peace as far as it depends on us, Romans 12, 9. And the ultimate mark of humility is the willingness to submit to suffering for Christ 
and counting that even as a great reward. Let not the wise man boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding, that you and I have the understanding, the knowledge that he's God, that he's a kind God, that he's a just God and a righteous God. These are the things that he delights and declares the Lord. Let's pray. So, Father God, I pray that you would lead us in the footsteps of your Son, who had all the glory of heaven, all the praise of heaven, and left that all to take on all the sufferings and the ignominy and the poverty and the mockery and, and the crucifixion and all that for us that we would be raised up to our right place, sons and daughters of the King of Kings. Oh, Lord, help us to understand that pride isn't just a roadblock. It's ultimately even more than a dead end. Lord, it is a destructive enemy in our life. And so we thank you, Lord, that you've come to give us life and give it more abundantly. Lord Jesus, may we find it in you May we share it for you and for those that you died for that you've called us to serve. In Christ's name we pray, amen.